Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. As Father Bill mentioned, today is the first Sunday of Advent, a liturgical season in the church calendar uh, leading up to Christmas where we will celebrate uh, a full season, the Feast of the Incarnation. Um, Advent is just from a Latin word, Adventus, meaning to come or to appear. And in this season, uh, we are preparing for and celebrating the coming of Jesus. Uh, We look back uh, to his birth when he took on flesh and dwelt among us. Um, Also during this Advent season, um, we're aware of the way that the Lord comes to us and appears to us even now, um, indwelling us by his Holy Spirit, uh, meeting us in his word and at his table. And we even look ahead uh, to the time in which he will come again in great power and great glory. All of these are tied up into the Advent season, uh, the season of light shining in the darkness. Uh, we, as God's people, wait in the shadows for the dawning of the light of Christmas, uh, the birth of Jesus. Um, now, you may have noticed uh, just in your daily life, going to the store, going to work, whatever, uh, Advent hymns and Christmas music all around. Uh, they tend to dominate uh, this season. Uh, And they form almost a cultural soundtrack for us, a backdrop uh, for the entire month uh, of December. And they fill us with warmth and with anticipation. Um, I always enjoy, like if I'm walking through Kroger and I notice, oh, there is uh, truth about Jesus pumping through these speakers uh, for those with ears to hear. It's one of the few times uh, where you see this kind of public celebration uh, that still lingers Uh, with us today. And that makes sense because songs, uh, they stick with us. Uh, Songs are powerful. And for that reason, God's people have always been a singing people. Uh, We offer the Lord the honor, do his name through song. Uh, There's something about when we sing, uh, these, these words, these melodies, these lyrics, they get inscribed on our hearts and in our minds. Uh, Singing these rich hymns over and over, uh, teach us and train us and help us to delight in the work that God has done uh, through his son, Jesus. Um, I love the Advent season. Um, I love the hymns. I love the songs. Um, I love them so much that we sang, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, to start, and we're going to sing the other four verses uh, to conclude. There's such richness in this season Um, And so this morning, we're actually going to look at a song. We're going to look at Psalm 80, the psalm assigned for this morning. Um, And just remember that during Advent, uh, there's an invitation to wait, to delay, to wait with quietness and generosity, with repentance and song, while everything around us rushes and exhaustion. So let's look at Psalm 80. Um, and just a reminder, as we turn to the Psalms, uh, the Psalms, all, all 150 of them, are the great hymn book at the heart of the Bible. Um, they've been the daily lifeblood of God's people uh, from the earliest times. Um, Bishop N.T. Wright has a book called The Case for the Psalms. 
And he says the Psalms are among the oldest poems in the world. And they actually stand up poetically um, as great literature with any poetry in any culture, ancient or modern, from anywhere in the world. They're full of power and passion. Uh, The Psalms have horrendous misery and unrestrained jubilation, a tender sensitivity and powerful hope. And and one of the coolest things, I think, is in in God's wisdom um, and his goodness and his sovereignty, he chose to give us the Psalms uh, through Hebrew, that language. Because the way poetry works in Hebrew uh, is different than how it works in English. Most of us, my, my daughter's in fifth grade and they're studying poetry now, and all of the poetry in fifth grade uh, is sing-songy and rhymey, right? It, it's all da 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 It all rhymes, um, and it works really well in English. That that's how our poetry is formed. But Hebrew poetry, um, it's not. It, it doesn't come together based on the last sound of the lines rhyming. Instead, it's how the ideas uh, parallel and differentiate from one another. And again, the coolest thing about that is that doesn't get lost in translation. I mean, just the goodness of God that he would say, I'm going to give you this poetry and this songbook. I'm going to give it to you through this Hebrew language and form that won't get lost in translation, uh, whether it's English or Spanish, Creole, French, whatever you're uh, praying it in, you'll get the sense um, of how the poetry is supposed to work. And in the Psalms, uh, I think for many of us, we find individual strength and comfort in the Psalms. Um, there are Psalms like Psalm 23, uh, Psalm 121. Um, when I'm in distress, those are Psalms that I grab. Uh, Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes unto the Lord, from thence my help cometh. Uh, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There's this powerful individual encouragement um, in this book. Um, And there's also huge encouragement for communities as a whole. And so that's why we actually use a psalm every week in our worship together. And this particular psalm that we're looking at this morning, Psalm 80, um, is not so much of an individual uh, poem. It's for this whole community that is gathered. Um, And in it, in this psalm, Psalm 80, uh, we find a people crying out for God to act. Uh, It's a cry for salvation and restoration. There's a desperateness that's appropriate to the Advent season because more than anything else, the Advent season begins with an awareness of our need. Uh, We show up and we need God to show up as well to act and to save and to heal and restore. We need his face uh, to shine upon us. So the first two verses of Psalm 80 um, just remind us who we are approaching and the privilege of coming to pray and worship God. Uh, They show us his beauty and his power. Um, They remind us that we actually can come to him and offer our prayers. And so verse 1 Um, And I'm going to bounce a little bit. We have the English Standard Version we use for study. Um, The version in your bulletin is what's called a metrical psalm. And all that's been is it's it's just reordered a little bit so the cadence works in English uh, for us saying it together or singing it together. So I might might bounce back and forth a little bit. Uh, But verse 1 in the English Standard Version says, Give ear, 
O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, um, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before, uh, and these are sons of Jacob, before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. We hear that over and over again, stir up your might and come uh, to save us. And as we look at these first two verses, we see two uh, truths about the Lord. Um, the first is that God is our shepherd. I mean, throughout the scriptures, God is frequently described as a shepherd, but here he's called the shepherd um, of Israel. And when you think about the idea of God as our shepherd, um, it should remind us of the close, uh, caring relationship of God uh, for his people. The way that he guides us, um, the way that he leads us. And of course, the problem in this psalm and the problem that you and I encounter from time to time is that if he is the shepherd, we are sheep. And here, the sheep feel lost and abandoned. They're crying out, shepherd, please come shepherd us. We don't know what to do. We need you to save and restore, and act, and heal us again. They are lost, and they are afraid. Um, and they invoke these, uh, these names, Ephraim, and Benjamin, and Manasseh. Um, these are both the sons of Jacob uh, in the book of Genesis, and these also are three of the sons who come into, they become the tribes of Israel, three of the twelve. And it's interesting how these names in the Psalms, that they both refer to these figures and the Old Testament, as well as these tribes, and sometimes even spill into the New Testament um, as well. And so I think this psalm is actually invoking Genesis 48. In Genesis 48, Jacob, who's also known as Israel, um, is on his deathbed. And uh, his son comes to him, along with two of his other sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, um, the ones mentioned here, um, the ones who will become tribes. And when Israel is divided into the northern and southern kingdom, they're the ones who will be part of the north. Um, and the northern kingdom is always in trouble. They're always lost. They're always scattered. Um, they're always looking to see what the Lord will do. And so these sons gather uh, before Jacob and Israel. And in Genesis 48, um, on his deathbed, the patriarch will bless them. And they're looking for a similar blessing uh, from the Lord. Make your face shine upon us. Here's what Genesis 48 says. The God before whom, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, uh, bless these boys. And in them let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Uh, this congregation is looking back to when they were part of this tribal system. They're looking back to the sons of Jacob and Israel and when God was very close and very near and his blessing was apparent in ways that it's not as they encounter him here. And they're asking God to draw near, to come to them, to act for them and save them uh, from whatever is wrong. And I actually think it's really useful when the Psalms don't tell us what their problem was. Because that helps us actually pray it for ourselves. <laughs> it, it gives some, some wiggle room, some latitude. 
We don't know what their problem was, but most of us know what our problems are. And so we can approach the Lord individually. We can approach the Lord as a community, as a family, as a church, and say, Lord, would you come and restore and heal and act again? Would you bless us? The second thing we see is that they are praying to one who is a divine king. I mean, the imagery of a, of a shepherd is tender and humble and lowly, but the divine king is high and lifted up. Um, here we are told that they are praying to one, you are enthroned upon the cherubim, uh, shine forth. You get that phrase, enthroned above uh, the cherubim. Um, and that can just sound kind of like church speak. <laughs> now, let me just unpack that a little bit to see, because there's a lot going on in this psalm. Um, if you read about the worship of God in the Old Testament, uh, when God gathered his people together and gave them very clear instructions, here's how you are to worship me, here's how you're to create a place uh, for me to dwell with you. Um, at the center of that was this place called the Holy of Holies. And you saw it both in the tent, the tabernacle that was mobile in the wilderness. Um, you also eventually see it in the temple itself. And at the center of that is a throne and an altar. Um, it's both. Um, it's a throne and an altar called the Ark of the Covenant. And above it are these cherubim, these angelic figures. Um, and, and we're told that once they had crafted everything, uh, gotten it ready, that God's very presence came and flooded the place. And his glory dwelt above the cherubim. Um, and what's interesting is that tells me this is not just God high and lifted up, but this is God in his divine majesty among us, with us, in the center of this community and in the center of their worship. This is Emmanuel language, God with us. Um, and in a psalm, in just a little bit, Psalm 99, a little bit after this, um, you get the same idea. The psalmist says, the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. It's his power. It's his might. It's his majesty. And we get to come in um, and approach him. As I think about these two verses together, just at the start of this psalm, um, it tells me that they are approaching one um, who cares for them, who is near to them, who is high and lifted up. Um, and it also tells me that they are approaching one who can do anything and everything that they ask. I mean, sometimes we need something and we have a hope or we have a wish and we're like, maybe this could happen. Maybe this person could do this. Um, can, you, can you let this happen right now? Um, but here, this is not a hopeful wishing. This is a confident prayer. They are praying to the one who is their shepherd, the one who is a king, the one enthroned upon the cherubim who has acted in time past, who is active in their life, and who they hope will lead them into their future. They're reaching out uh, to God. And in verse 3, we see this refrain over and over and over again, uh, restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Now, that appears three times in this psalm. Um, and it tells us that this is both uh, the point, this is why they are praying. Uh, restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. 
Um, some actually surmise that the repetition of this formed a kind of call and response liturgy, um, like we do in church, that the, the song leader would have his part, and then the people, restore us, O Lord, let your face shine that we may be saved. A little bit more. And then restore us, O Lord, let your face shine that we may be saved. Three times. And, and many would say that this psalm was probably crafted when they were facing some kind of a huge a calamity or disaster, and they were desperate for God to act. They had no way to fix things themselves. And so they were praying, restore us, um, O God. I don't know if that phrase, restoration, if you've thought about that often, but it's interesting um, because on the one hand, they are turning towards the Lord. And that's a form of repentance. They're turning towards the Lord but what they need is, is the reciprocal turning. They need the Lord to turn to them. They say, let your face shine upon us. We want to see you. We want to be blessed by you. We want you to act for us because we know that only you um, can do what we're asking. And then I'm going to jump a little bit um, because what's interesting is that they, in verse 3, um, they're confessing their desperation their inability to save themselves. They're asking the Lord to relent. Maybe they've done something wrong. And they're kind of, enough is enough. Lord, would you act? Would you move? Would you uh, relent? Um, I actually do love that <laughs> the prescription we see here is to show up and be honest and be in desperate need. Um, there's times when I come to church or even times in the church year where I'm like, I don't know if I have the emotion <laughs> to match what this moment requires. Well, Advent asks you to do three things. To show up, to be honest, and to be desperate for the Lord. And that seems doable. <laughs> when things are going well, when things are going poorly, when I'm getting it right, when I'm not, I can show up and be honest and need the Lord. Uh, to move. And so uh, in a minute, I want to jump to verses 17 through 19. They're not in your, in your bulletin, but it's the end of the psalm. Because what's interesting is that they do, at the end of the psalm, say, Lord, we want you to move and to act and to heal and restore. And this is how we think you can do it. And that may seem presumptuous because <laughs> they're speaking to the Lord. Um, but I kind of like it. I mean, think about just in your normal life, at work or school or with your family. Sometimes people come up to you and they say, hey, here's a problem. Um, figure out how to fix it. You're like, man, now I got to deal with this and figure out how to fix it and how are we going to do that? The other way is sometimes people come up and they say, hey, here's a problem and here's how we think we can fix it. How does that solution work? They're actually solution-oriented uh, in this psalm to go, we think, Lord, that there is someone whom you can act through who can bring the kind of deliverance and restoration and salvation that we need. And so we're going to get to that at the very end of the psalm. Um, I will say I had actually planned to kind of skip the middle section um, when I was preparing this week because I wasn't sure kind of how it fit. Um, I never know people's kind of where they are when you come to the first Sunday of Advent. It always feels a little bit like whiplash, especially like if you've not celebrated Advent before, if you're more of like a, we've always done Christmas, you're like, what in the world? We are like repenting and talking about the end of the world. 
And could someone please get like a nativity scene and let's do church properly? Um, I mean, I, can, I don't know where you show up. Um, and, and, and for Advent, you actually want to be lowly and desperate. And I've got to be honest, when I was watching the game last night, <laughs> and I was like, well, how are we going to gather? It's like, all right, we're going to be lowly and uh, desperate. Um, verse 6, you have made us, uh, what's it say? You have made us the derision of our neighbors, and our enemies laugh us to scorn. Now, at a very minor level, we got a little taste of that. We saw what that looks like. It's not pleasant. You're desperate. You need the Lord to move, the Lord to act, the Lord to restore and redeem and to bless them. And so they actually look at uh, verse 17 and say, wait a minute. Um, we think that God Almighty, the shepherd of Israel enthroned upon the cherubim, has something uh, up his sleeve, if you will. Verse 17 says, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man, whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. And then the refrain again, Restore us, O Lord, God of hosts. Let your light and face shine that we may be saved. Um, and it doesn't take a lot of Bible study to figure out. Uh, they're looking at the Messiah. They're looking for God's own son. They're looking for this one who is at God's right hand who can come and bring salvation. The one who they've been waiting on will come and he will draw near to heal and restore. The Son of Man, chosen and favored by God, his anointed one, the one whom he has made strong. And if we, if we, if we go with that, then what's incredible is to think about how that story plays out. Because the other title we haven't talked about yet is that over and over here, God is called the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies. And so how marvelous and wonderful and mysterious that the Lord of the armies would act simply by sending his son, simply by sending this son, not with armies or troops, but to come and lead an assault by taking on flesh and being born in a manger. Helpless and humble and vulnerable. God with us and God for us. During this Advent season, we are given an invitation, an opportunity to retrace the long wait of God's people for this Son of Man to appear. And we sit patiently, uh, hopefully aware that God's ways are not our ways. His timing is not our timing. We marvel that the Lord of the armies would come to fight against sin and death and the devil through this surprising baby uh, born to Mary. And we ask him, that son, again and again, over and over to come into our lives to come into our lives, to restore and to save and to show us uh, who God is. 
And we also use this season uh, to look around at all that is dark inside of us and our world and say, Lord, would you come and make all things new? Would you come and make all things right? Would you stir up your might and come to save us again? And so many of these images um, remind me of a scene from Isaiah 6. And we'll, we'll close with this. Um, Isaiah 6 is another place where we see the Lord enthroned upon the cherubim. And the prophet Isaiah actually gets a glimpse of the actual glory of God's throne. Here's what he writes in chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, these angelic creatures. Uh, each had six wings. With two, uh, they covered their face. With two, uh, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Uh, the song of the angels. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called the house was filled with smoke. And here's how Isaiah responds. Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The first and most natural response as we glimpse the Lord's glory and his beauty is repentance. To turn to him. I mean, think about it. When Jesus comes and he begins his ministry, what's his consistent message? Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. The kingdom of heaven has drawn near over and over and over again. It's his most consistent message. Um, and it, he, he gives it to everybody. I, I mean, if your sin is, is worn on your shoulder and everybody can see it, the Lord says, repent and go and sin no more. And if your sin is not so apparent, and maybe it's buried under a, a, a facade of goodness, then the Lord says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Um, if you are rich, if you are poor, if you are religious or non-religious, if you are powerful or weak, Jesus said, repent. Turn to me, and our hope from Psalm 80 is that he will turn to us. The first word of Advent of this season is to repent, to prepare with repentance. I'll close with this. This is from, um, uh, it's an Anglican priest and poet named uh, Malcolm Guite. We actually, uh, we've got some resources that we recommend for this season, and he's got a devotional uh, book that is, um, that's for Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany. Um, but here's what he says about this season as we close. Advent is a paradoxical season, a season of waiting and anticipation in which the waiting itself is strangely rich and fulfilling. A season that looks back at the people who waited in darkness for the coming light of Christ and yet forward to a fuller light still to come that can illumine our darkness. Advent can uh, help us restore that quietness, that inner peace, that willingness to wait unfulfilled in the dark 
in the midst of a season that conspires to do nothing but fling, bling, and tinsel at us uh, right through December. He says, reclaiming Advent's rich fast will restore meaning to the even richer feast when Christmas comes. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Would you please stand?